Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. When was the last time that you felt afraid of rejection that you didn't say what you really thought about a topic? Have you ever played it safe by keeping your opinions to yourself? How often do you play it safe by placating and going along with others' opinions so you are liked by them? Hello, everybody. This is Patricia Zurita Oña. For those of you who are new to the show, I am a psychologist and I specialize on acceptance and commitment therapy for anxiety-based struggles. And since I have a long name, I go by Dr. Z. Today, I am sharing with all of you a super rich conversation I had with Todd Kashdan. Todd is a researcher, and he shared with us his work on persuasion, healthy discernment, group thinking, and a frame to handle conflict or differences with others that go beyond assertiveness training. Todd is a professor of psychology at George Mason University. He is an authority on well-being, curiosity, psychological flexibility, and resilience. For over 20 years, he has been teaching college courses in the science of well-being. He is the author of several books, including Curious, The Upside of Your Dark Side, and The Art of Insubordination. He frequently writes for the Harvard Business Review, New York Times, and Psychology Today. So, as you are listening to this episode, I will invite you to consider all those times in which people challenge your opinions, people challenge your beliefs, and how, in the midst of the situation, you navigated that conflict. If we have low tolerance to uncertainty and we don't know how to handle this interpersonal conflict, we may hold on to our beliefs with white knuckles as if they are the absolute truth. The challenge is that every time we do that, in a relationship with people that we care about, that hurts the relationship and that leads people to feel unseen and to feel unheard. I also want to encourage you to think about other times in which you may have been afraid of conflict or being disliked by others or being rejected by others, that you play it safe by placating or avoiding rocking the boat to the extent that you weren't yourself. In this conversation, Todd shares a frame that he uses to approach these challenging and courageous conversations and how he navigates interactions with others in his life. 
He also shares his work on healthy dissentment, how uncertainty plays a role in our thinking, why people in disadvantage support leaders that don't favor them, and we also chat about the case of Evo Morales, a former president of Bolivia. I really hope you find this conversation useful when dealing with interpersonal conflict and keep in mind that this is part one of my conversation with Todd. If you are new to the podcast, please make sure to subscribe to the newsletter Playing It Safe. You can go to the website www.thisisdrz.com. In the newsletter, I usually announce private events, upcoming books, upcoming live events or workshops I am hosting, and I also share new original content, all focused on acceptance and commitment skills for all types of anxiety or fear-based struggles like perfectionist, procrastination, performance anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, social anxiety, indecision-making, and any other thing related to fear. So you can get access to compassionate, evidence-based, and actionable skills to tackle ineffective, plain-it-safe moves. I wish you a lovely day. See you next week. And here is part one of my interview with Todd Kashdan. I am super curious about the title of the book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Descend and Defy Effectively. What's the story behind the title and the topic of your work? Well, this is six years in the making. So <laughs> this is before Trump. This is wow. before COVID. Um, still had political intolerance. And at the time, I just noticed a number of social trends that were happening that were just interesting. I mean, the the number of jobs that adult would report was an mm-hmm. average 12 during their adult years. You had the lowest rates of religiosity and spirituality in the history of humanity. And then you have this interesting residential mobility where the largest percentage of people are living in places that are outside of where their families and their childhoods have been. And so you put a lot of these things together along with social media and you ask yourself, you know, what are the consequences socially to be, um, to have so much divergence in how humans interact with each other. And I spent six years trying to figure out this, this whole line of work suggesting that if you want to be influential, but you lack power and status or the numbers, the path for doing so is very different than for everyone else. So the persuasion and influence books might work, but not if you're a minority seeking influence. And so that's that's the nature of this book. And the title was meant to be very provocative, which is very, deviates very greatly from how I'm perceived. And <laughs> I wanted to take a seemingly negative and show that it's actually a positive thing. This thing of insubordination, challenging your superiors, your bosses, your parents, you know, people that are older than you and there's a, there's a beauty in kind of taking back terms that are unnecessarily seen as negatively valued. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love what you're sharing because, you know, I'm a minority, I'm a woman, I'm a person with accent. So I think no matter how hard we can work, it is true that there are some structures that are already imposed on us that really reduces our chances for our work to be seen. And if I can ask a little bit more, When I think of insubordination, of course, my mind quickly thought 
well, that's about questioning, challenging, which I think we need that because scientific knowledge grows with that. We have to question, we have to challenge. But the book also came out at the time in which, at least in the States, there was so much polarization of ideas. We were thinking in dichotomous ways, black and white, yes or not. Politically, we think about Democrats and Republicans. And I'm curious, when you published this book in a very polarized time, how was for you to put that book out there in which you're saying, watch out for group thinking. Let's take a look to what's really going on here. You know, I have to say, I think there's every single period of time, it seems like it's the right time to recognize that there are voices outside of where the power structures lie where there's value, there's innovation, there's creativity that's being neglected. So yes, it seems like now is the perfect time for this book. But if it was the 1980s, it would have been Mm. the the satanic cults that everyone thought was happening in daycares, right? That's what was happening then where, you know, for listeners that don't remember, there was, this was when women were really entering the workforce at really high rates in the 1980s. And daycare centers were were first appearing in the United States women felt the sense of guilt because part of it was socially imposed of I'm supposed to be caring for my kids. Am I doing something wrong? Am I transforming my kids into these sociopathic, narcissistic, indulgent Mm -hmm. creatures if I go to the workplace? And with that backdrop, people started to report um, these kind of really bizarre, abusive scenarios. You know, one of the ones that that sticks with me that I remember when I was like 10 years of age was Mm -hmm. There was a 26-year-old teacher that was accused of putting a bomb in a hamster in a preschool and let the kids watch it as this hamster exploded. There was no evidence that a hamster existed. There was no evidence of entrails being on kids' clothes. And yet she ended up going to prison for this and you know a hundred other violations. And so if the book came out then. It would be the same thing of, hey, was anyone listening to a dissenting voice that said, wait a second, if a teacher put a bomb in the side of a hamster, don't you think there would be body parts somewhere, even in the garbage or the gutter or, you know, just look for in the backyard and nobody listened to anyone that was disagreeing with the predominant thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's such a powerful example. Um, in your book, I was really, really surprised when I read a chapter about what was going on in Bolivia with Evo Morales. And one, because I'm Bolivian, and, and also because it was very controversial. Um, so it was very interesting when I was talking to people in the States, the perception was that the conservative parties of Bolivia were kicking out this indigenous president. If you were in Bolivia, the experience was quite different because we did have an indigenous president for over 10 years who initially started as a solid leader for us. But then as time passed by, there were a lot of decisions that were made that come across as dictatorship or fascism. But in your book, you capture beautifully this conflict and how you have to research so much more. So I'm curious, how did you tap into that and any thoughts you have about it? Because it was a very juicy chapter. <laughs> um, Patricia, this is such great validation. That is probably the one area I was most concerned that I got this right. The reason was, was that, I mean, obviously, correct me anywhere that I was wrong on that chapter about Evo Morales' life. Um that it is really hard to find information about a dictator 
in a non um like a non powerhouse country right a russia a germany a japan a china uh, because all of the books that I read was clearly so slanted towards being pro Evo Morales or yeah. against Evo Morales that I had to read even more books because I because I didn't have my own opinion yet because I'm just learning this for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, the reason that I was interested in it is I do believe that modern social activists could learn a great deal about what to do and what not to do by paying attention to history. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes you can learn a little bit more by going outside of your cultural zone to figure out what history has taught us. So if you live in the States, you learned about Martin Luther King Jr. You learned about Malcolm X. And if you live, if you live in Bolivia, you learned about Evo Morales. And so there's something about a little bit, so taking the research that I'm actually touting as strategies there's a psychological distancing if you mm-hmm. listen to how an amazing activist fighting against a problematic government eventually becomes the exact thing that they were fighting against as they gain power. There's a psychological distance of seeing it in another country as like you can you can see like, oh, I see, like you're pro-diversity until you gain power, and then you're anti-diversity and you're anti-dissent once you gain power. But when it's close to home, especially if it's your political tribe, when you're mm-hmm. hearing a person, you just start to shake your head and say, no, you got the story wrong this way. So <laughs> I try to strategically grab stories from um, from the outside, the outside view of readers that you couldn't read this book fully and not find a story that was something that you've never been exposed to before. That's true. That's true. I think you did an incredible job just researching topics or situations that we, they were overseen. And you beautifully unpacked the research on that. And that leads me to my other question, Todd. When you think about group thinking, there is that phenomenon that people will go along with a thinking that is dominant at that time. And how do you explain that psychologically? Um, one of the researchers that we read on tolerance of uncertainty shows that when people have low tolerance of uncertainty, if they get exposed to new information, they may quickly hold into their old beliefs. But if people have high tolerance of uncertainty, they may hold other perspectives, perhaps with more flexibility. But uncertainty is just one aspect of what I read. But in your research, how do you explain this phenomenon that people will go into this group thinking and quickly agree with a dominant way of thinking on any topic? Yeah, Patricia, you grabbed a really good like pathway for how do you get to a place where you are conforming to a system that is actually against your interests and is against the golden rule, which is Mm -hmm. that basically you are dehumanizing people and you're treating people as if they're instruments as opposed to, you know, these holistic entities. I mean, one of the other more interesting pathways that comes from research in Malaysia is showing that people that are disadvantaged in a society, you would think that they are just waiting for um, sufficient a sufficient alliance to form that you can rebel against the power structure. And mm-hmm. actually, John Jost and and basically these researchers in Malaysia have found is that often the people that are most conformist are the ones that have that are losing the most with the existing status quo structure. So the oh, most wow. economically disadvantaged, the people that are there. So you always hear this question in popular media, which is why are people voting? for politicians that are embracing policies that are against the individual's actual interests, right? Someone has a job that doesn't give them health insurance, so they have to pay out of pocket 
extensive, you know, thousands of dollars if they if they break their arm, thousands of dollars if they have to have a tumor removed from, you know, from their from their body. Like, why would they not vote for universal health care? Mm-hmm. And this body of research shows that it's not about the policy. It's essentially is that because you are downtrodden at the lower rungs in this social in this social hierarchy is as long as power structures give you the realization that there's a possibility of hope for social mobility and Mm -hmm. economic mobility, you're willing to basically sacrifice the present for the lottery ticket of a potentially aspirational future. And this precise mechanic, Mm -hmm. mechanics where you've got three time perspectives, you have nostalgia for the past, you have what's existing in the present moment, which I know you're into with acceptance commitment therapy. Then you mm-hmm. have this future orientation. Oh. And so if a politician or whatever's the power structure, your boss, your coach, they take advantage of this. They, they, they do three things. One is to show you that thinking about the past in a nostalgic way, know that you're better off now. And I'm going to point very slanted, point out the negatives of the past so you can contrast it with the present and think the present is better than the past. And in terms of the present, I ask you not to emphasize it too much because I'm going to show you some exemplars of individuals who are going to gain mobility in my my task over the next two or four years as a leader is to increase the likelihood that you could end up in this category, set up past, present, and future orientation in this way, and disadvantaged people will vote against their current interests because of the mere probability of something good happening in the future. Um, that's really powerful to hear the research you have done and look at how nostalgia and the present and hope can be actually play against us. And it really can lead us to think like everyone else. Um, so the podcast and the work that I have been doing the last couple of years is focused on applying acceptance and commitment skills for anyone dealing with fear-based struggles. And when we experience fear, we play it safe. That's human. And in relationships, for example, I may placate. I may go along with what you're saying so I don't rock the boat. I may avoid applying for a job in my career. I may overthink. I may doubt. In the context of our conversation, why would you encourage people to try any actionable tips that you can provide them so they get out of conformist thinking and they stop playing it safe by going along with the dominant thinking? Yeah, I mean, so this is, this book is really about what is the vision of how you would like your life to be and how you'd like the mm-hmm. world to be? And then here is a really powerful mechanism that we have 60 years of science to say, when you have healthy dissent that is normalized and accepted in groups, it is the greatest protection possible against conformity mistakes. And so maybe for an individual, it's not so much of you rebelling or dissenting more. Maybe it's, can you be more receptive to ideas that are outside of how you are currently thinking and categorizing what's good and what's bad? I'll give you a concrete example of this that just happened the other day. Um, so last week in the United States was book banning week. I, it's right. against, against book banning. And, um, and I heard from a number of people who actually are, you know, listen, I'm against book banning, but the thing is, is that, how sexually provocative should material be for a high school student? That happens, mm-hmm. And they offer a case of saying, listen, if, 
if you've never been in a romantic relationship before and you've never been exposed to sexuality before, um, do you want your teenage kid to be exposed for the first time in a book that's being taught in class in that exact context of a teacher where they're getting randomly assigned to them, they're not even choosing the facilitator of that knowledge, much less do they necessarily have a safe, a safe space, a relationship that has a sense of belonging, and a, a relationship where there's actually um, some level of trustworthiness that I can reveal my misgivings and concerns about this topic. Now, you and many people listening might be like me, which is just generally against book banning, but even if you disagree with this viewpoint, it does make you start to ask the question, okay, developmentally, what is should be socially acceptable for a 17-year-old versus a 15-year-old versus a 13-year-old and thinking about books? And even though I might not want to ban books, which books do I want to, with great effort and expenditure, push them towards these books as opposed to they can freely grab this book. They have to find it themselves like a scavenger hunt in the library. These are really good questions to ask. So, so you're moving the dissenter who you might even disagree with is making you rethink what should be in the library in the first place in terms of what should actually I be actually recommending and putting the title in front of your face. Those are two very different behaviors there. So you can have... You can have approaches, approach behaviors in terms of here's the book I suggest. You can have avoidance behaviors. I'm going to ban this book. But there's also a third category, which is that this is accessible, but I'm just not going to mention it. So you might find it on your own. And so that third category is not being discussed really often in the book banning debates that's happening there. And that's the beauty of dissent is it always allows you to access more information and more adjacent possibilities when you're thinking about a problem or you're thinking about like some, some you know, aspirational ideal that you want to work towards. So Todd, if I can ask a little bit more about that, how do you practice healthy dissent in your life? You are doing all this beautiful work, but it is human that we're going to hold and do some ideas. How do you practice that in your day-to-day life? Yeah, I mean, I'm raising three daughters. You know, I'm in mm-hmm. romantic, I'm in a romantic relationship. So these are, I have friends. So what that means is I have lots of problems, social problems. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and so there's a number of things, like it's little simple things. I mean, one is that we know that when you're extremely irritated or frustrated, it's it's not that this is a negative or bad emotion. It's just it's an emotional state that is suboptimal for dealing with good decision making. And so use the information when you're angry in terms of why was I angry, but have the conversation about how to think about their perspective and resolve this when you're not Mm -hmm. angry. So you can imagine almost like leapfrogging. So imagine a frog on like multiple lily pads to get from, you know, one side of the brook to the other side of the brook. It might be Jump on a lily pad where you feel anger. You feel righteous indignation. You don't like you don't like how someone was talking to you. Um, you don't appreciate that you were neglected because you know you're a woman on a panel with all men, and you feel as if the airtime you receive is much less than everyone else. In that state of anger, pay close attention, collect the information, save mm-hmm. it, work with it, but don't necessarily have the conversation right then and there. Jump to the next lily pad, and the next lily pad. When it's the next day, 
and you're meeting your presenters that are on the panel with you and you're talking to people that are in the audience and you're a woman that got almost no airtime, this might be an appropriate time to actually bring up the conversation about what just transpired. And so in this calm state, you start off with curious questions. It's not just a question. The inflection of how you ask the question is, mm. I think, an, an ignored element of this. Um, let's say that, keep it the same example. You're a woman, you're at a conference, you're at work. There are a lot of men there who are speaking. You got almost no airtime. Mm -hmm. so now the question is, hey, how do you think yesterday went in terms of all of us actually getting, getting an opportunity to display our points? Now you get a baseline of, hey, do they even see the same thing that you saw? From mm -hmm. there, you can say, you might want to say, hey, I noticed that I actually spoke a lot less than everybody else. I'm wondering like how that, whether that was something that was, was visible to you and that how the, how do you feel about that kind of that scenario from, from my perspective and the way that I just said that there's nothing really to argue with because I'm saying, I felt this, I saw this, I'm curious about your perspective of the same situation. Mm -hmm. And we might get to a point where we, we can actually ask ourselves, hey, is there objective evidence that you actually did speak for less period of time? And we, we might not have a clock, but we can actually ask people in the audience and ask them, hey, rank order, who spoke the most when you heard the talk yesterday? So you can mm -hmm. use that information to happen there. One of the ways of being effective at dissenting is as much as possible, rely on objective information and label it as such. And when you're moving to subjective mm. information, when people talk about lived experiences, for example, I think it's very important to just say, I use the word like, here, I'm just going to give my op-ed on the situation. Mm. Mm. Just, here's my opinion. Here's my subjective feelings, my subjective thoughts. I might be off. And as we label what's objective data and evidence, mm -hmm. behavioral evidence, what's, what's subjective? We don't just gain traction in terms of people's defenses being lowered and people being more intrigued in the conversation. We also end up being more trustworthy because we're now the type of person that is saying, I am clear that there are bins mm -hmm. and one of the spin is behavioral and objective and one of the spin is subjective. And every time that you label and categorize as such, you gain trust of like, oh, okay, you know what? This is going to be a fair-minded person that I'm having an argument or a constructive disagreement with. I absolutely love how you are pinpointing how this inflection in questioning um, makes a difference. How we can actually facilitate an open conversation when people can hear us versus quickly going to this aggressive confrontation. Why didn't I have the same time that these other panelists had? Very different. Um, and from that place, if a person wants to engage in strategies to persuade people's opinions and to make a shift, how would you approach that? Yeah, so one, one of the strategies is really to showcase that I am a loyal, hardworking member of the same group that we both affiliate with. Mm -hmm. And so this is when you move away from humility and you point out, of, listen, I have a long behavioral track record if I care. So if you're in an organization, you're for the Parent Teacher Association, for you and I, Patricia, like our scientific conferences that we're part of. If I'm disagreeing with the speakers people choose or how money is being spent, be, to, to make sure, to get, it's you know, this is kind of a regular maxim. How do you keep curiosity high and defensiveness down? 
Mm-hmm. And one of the strategies is saying, listen, you know that I've been here for 10 years and I just want to just tell you how many things I've done because I care so much about the vitality of this organization and this group, the longevity of this group and the health of this group. I've been on this committee. I volunteered my time for this. I've mentored this number of people. I've gone to this many conferences in the past that happened there. Um, and I am extremely active in every online, you know, listserv and Facebook group. You like you, you've seen me there. So with that background, I want to offer my thoughts about something I think we can improve on. So you can already feel it, hopefully, is that when you have this real good meta commentary where you're saying, you're not just saying you're a good group member, you're not just saying I care about the group, you are displaying behavioral residue that you are a good group member, people are like, oh, okay, you know what? Thanks for reminding me. Now, actually, I'm actually really want to listen to you because I know you care. And when someone doesn't put the group first, a description about that, the original thought is, What's the motivation for why you're poking the bear? Why are you bringing unnecessary strain into my lives? Why are you making me have to write another email, have another phone call, have another Zoom call that happens there? You want to prevent people from saying you are creating inefficiencies by you disagreeing and dissenting. And this is one of the problems of dissent is that it does create an inefficiency in the system. So what you do up front is want to say, I know I'm going to provide some costs here. I want to show you the ledger of why I'm focusing on benefits and this is going to be beneficial, but not right at this exact moment. I love that response. I think it's very rich and it's tapping into something that perhaps we forget. It's easy to get cranky, to be upset because we get exposed to unfair situations and quickly jump into that feeling. So I will keep that in mind how to create an environment when there is high curiosity and low defenses. So thank you for those tips. Super helpful. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you are feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable, playing it safe actions. See you soon!